The Future of Finance is Here podcast looks at the changing landscape of the Australian finance industry. Our industry is financing Australia's future, a future that will be driven by access and choice for consumers, embracing innovation and competition, and generating greater economic and therefore social participation for all Australians. AFIA CEO Diane Tate talks to industry leaders and extraordinary individuals about their experiences, good and bad, and how those experiences have shaped and continue to shape their contribution to our industry and Australia. Hello, and welcome to The Future of Finance is Here, AFIA's inaugural podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the role of industry associations and industry codes of practice in lifting standards, activism from within and outside the industry, and how this can create a unified voice and foster a community within an industry, and the challenges and opportunities presented by the COVID-19 crisis for the Australian finance industry. However, it seemed fitting, perhaps because I'm biased around all of this, that we're actually going to flip it around today. And instead of me interviewing someone, I'm going to be the interviewee. Really, this is not an interview, though. It will be a conversation, and you'll understand why in a moment that I have absolutely no chance of having this episode follow a script. For today's session, I welcome Ross Greenwood, print and television journalist, radio presenter, and until last year when he decided he would take a year off to travel the world, not such great timing, Ross has spent 16 years as Channel 9 business and finance editor. I know you've been making the most of adjusting your plans because of COVID, so thank you very much for taking time off from having fun. I'm hoping today's session is going to be fun for you as well. Well, you've got me between golf games, so what could I say? I was at a weak moment, so no no problems at all. Look, thank you so much and good to be here with you. And of course, for all of those AFIA members, this is a real chance to not only get a bit to know your chief executive a bit more, but also to explore some of the issues that are going to confront you not just today, but into the future as well. So, Diane, I get the chance to ask the questions to begin this session. So I'm just going to start with you and say, it all seems to be okay at the moment. Coronavirus, people are adapting as they've got to. Now, we don't have international travellers coming in. There's unemployment, which is going to be persistently high. The government, however, has thrown billions and billions and billions of dollars at the economy, $1.7 trillion in gross debt it could actually peak out at. That means there's money sloshing around the place. People are going to want to do something with that money. Does it concern you as part of the industry that maybe this is going to lead to to excess, cheap interest rates, easy availability for credit for this period of time, and that not just your members, but their clients might make poor decisions during what could be a a period when there is this, this easy money around the place? Look, that's a good question and a big question to start with. Thanks, Ross. And and off script, might I say. So let me think about a good answer to it. Look, the industry and government and businesses have come together like I really haven't seen in my career before. You know, the GFC had its moments where things really happened in a fast way and and there was a lot of collaboration. But the GFC sort of had a few months to play out before things became serious. Whereas this COVID crisis was an extreme and immediate shock. As you said, government has put in a lot of support into the economy. The JobKeeper payment has been critical to keep businesses going. I think you know the banks and other lenders, uh, by providing repayment relief, have really helped us get to the point that we are. One thing I do say when I reflect when people do ask me about, are we about to go off another cliff, is as I think about my conversations I have with overseas counterparts, which I have regularly at strange hours of the night, 
early on in the crisis, they were perplexed about how Australia was managing things and, and that puzzlement has not got any better. They just go, what's going on over there? You really are the lucky country. I don't think it's luck. I think it's actually good management here. I think Australians have responded as Australians would, whether that's a culture of mateship and leaning in and helping your community. Because let's face it, this is a health crisis before it's an economic crisis. And I think Australians have done what they've needed to do, which is to you know just deal with what's facing them and get on with it. Governments have been prepared for this. The industry has been prepared for this. This is not like the GFC. It's not a liquidity crisis. The financial system is strong and is helping us through. So I think the next phase of this crisis is going to be important for us to go, okay, well, what do we need to do to make sure that the availability of credit, right-sized, best-price credit, is getting to the people that need it? Because we've also got a multi-speed economy going on at the moment. People like to call it dual speed. You know, if you think about what's going on in Western Australia versus Queensland versus New South Wales versus Victoria, very different circumstances. We've seen early on in the crisis, sort of around that April, May time, people really needing some support. And you saw the industry, the finance sector stepping up and doing that. As business was able to reopen after that first lockdown, we really saw a bounce back in activity. We didn't see a bounce back in consumer confidence nor business confidence. So I think that the budget we've, you know, had handed down has got a lot of initiatives in it to help, you know, retain that confidence level and to really drive forward investment. But not every business and not every individual is in a place to invest. So what we need to do now is think, okay, now we've got this real push for investment and growth. What else is going to be needed through the next few months? But back to the point of your question, look, I think there's really a few things going on, which is at a system level, we've got the government that's made changes to the insolvency laws. Those things are going through right now to empower businesses to be able to take decisions in the best interest of their business and to work with their creditors. There's also some changes to the credit laws, which uh, are intended to make sure that getting access to credit is easier in terms of you know, the documents that need to be submitted and that sort of thing, but without losing the strong consumer protections that exist in the law. So that's at the system level. At the, at the lender level and the business level, uh, lenders, as we've talked about, are doing things to make sure that they support their customers through this period of instability and are working with their customers to make sure that they, they've got the right information to make choices about what's in their best interest now and the future of their business. But at the individual level, I mean, we're really seeing a turnaround in terms of behaviour. Debt levels in terms of credit card debt is coming down. Australians are saving. So I think you know, at aggregate, the system in terms of the policy settings and government, lenders in terms of their practices, and then individual customers, whether they be businesses or consumers, are putting in place strategies now to help themselves get through this crisis. But one of the things that I think really needs to happen as part of our path, you know, for recovery is, is that there is a, a relationship between what we save, but also what we spend. And so the government is asking businesses to invest and grow their business. Then I take you to the 1987 share market crash that triggered Australia's last Great Depression in 1991. That was four years later. And what government did after the 87 share market crash was what they do now, cut interest rates, created a housing boom, gave free and available credit, which meant all of a sudden that house prices shot up, there was a boom, everything happened. But then in those days, unlike today, there was inflation. So the Reserve Bank ultimately had to take the stimulus away, raise interest rates, which prompted the recession four years later. What troubles me is that we've got a period of time where all the Band-Aids are on the economy right now. It's absolutely full throttle. Interest rates are zero, next two. You've got the government throwing the best part of another $500 billion at the economy coming, subsidising people's jobs. 
So what worries me is at some point down the track, government has to stop doing that. It's at that point then that I think the finance industry and also its credit assessments are going to be really critically judged according to the decisions that are being made even today. So how do you best set up an industry that is going to be lending money into the economy, taking business risk? How do you set them up for what might be down the track three or four years? There's a couple of ways of answering that, I guess. One is to say, you know, what are we doing as, a, as an industry at the AFIA level? And then there's the, what are the individual institutions doing? So if I take the first piece, preparedness, 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 um, dealing with the government, looking at what needs to happen in terms of the rules and regulations around the sector, making sure that they are balanced, fit for purpose. Uh, you know, the things we've been talking to government about are making sure that regulation's proportionate, that the requirements uh, apply across products and across markets in scalable ways, uh, and that we have strong consumer protections. Our engagement with government and regulators is focused on ensuring that our economic recovery is for the long term and sustainable. At an institutional level, again, preparedness, preparedness, preparedness. I mean, the institutions are doing a lot of work, um, making sure their systems are better, making sure their decisions are better, making sure that their technologies and their data is better. You know, the industry is at its core about financing Australia's future. And it's with all of our interests to make sure that credit is accessible, that there is choice, that we have innovation and competition, and that those things support financial and social participation of all Australians. You know, no doubt the next couple of years is going to be hard going. I mean, the Reserve Bank Governor has said late last year that, uh, you know, we should be expecting this to be a little bit lumpy. Uh, and I think he's right. But, you know, if there's a Team Australia moment, it's about all of us leaning in together. Yeah, okay. But what I want to pick you up there is that's all, again, fine. A and even banks, and you've come from a banking background as well, and we knew each other very well there. Even there, they're trying to put on the friendly face post the Royal Commission. Now, the issue is that there is always risk attached with any lending. And at some point, a hard decision has to be made if a person can't repay. And if you go through major shopping centres right now, there is going to be a raft of retailers. There's going to be a raft of people in the tourism, and leisure and hospitality sectors that will not survive. Hard decisions will have to be made. What I wonder as an industry is whether the industry is robust and set up well enough to be able to cope with potential negative publicity that comes as a result of hard commercial decisions that need to be made in the future? So at the strategy level, the industry is heading in the right direction, I think. And it's not just my organisation, it's you know, the, you know, the industry more broadly as well. I think the Royal Commission was an obvious wake-up call and a wake-up call for much of the industry too late. But there has been lessons learned from that. But even before that, out of the GFC, there was a lot of practices that changed in terms of the way individual institutions are set up and managed and the mechanisms around the system is managed. So a couple of points. One is, is that the, the ADIs are getting a lot of support through the, the funding facility that's provided by the Reserve Bank. They've received relief from APRA around how they treat COVID loans for this period of time, and that's really helped them be able to get money into the system and to customers. That's why they've been able to support and provide um, repayment relief. And that's pretty important because you need money in the system, literally the oil going through the machine to keep it actually progressing. And that's something the Reserve Bank and the government have known about. And when interest rates are just about zero, that's pretty much all the Reserve Bank could do. That's right. But the mechanism was there. The other mechanism, that's the second thing, is, is that the AOFM, which is the Australian Office of Financial Management, has a program which is supporting smaller lenders, so non-banks, non-ADI lenders, through structured finance. 
And so what that's doing is, is allowing the entire system to be able to support their customers. So you've got banks and you've got non-banks. You've got ADIs and non-ADIs doing what they can right now to support their customers through this period. Now, your question really gets to what happens at the end of whenever this period is. Not everybody will survive. Right. So, look, I think, I mean, the reality is there is going to be an adjustment. And uh, I know that AFIA members have been having a lot of conversations with their customers throughout the period. Some lenders uh, provided a six-month repayment relief period up front. Other lenders didn't do that. They have been having shorter periods but have been touching base with their customers more regularly. Um, so I think that that ongoing conversation to make sure lenders are supporting their customers as much as they can is really important. It's the combination of factors though, Ross. We've had JobKeeper come in and help keep people in jobs and so that's direct support to businesses. We've now seen the instant asset write-off coming in and that's going to be an initiative that will we'll has and will continue to drive investment uh, and growth for those businesses that are in a position to do so. So what we've been turning our minds to at AFIA is, is what is the next piece that's needed? And specialised lenders, which are in the AFIA membership, they don't just provide term loans like the bigger banks can do. They're providing quite different products. Through trade finance. Trade finance. Car loans, whatever it might be, fleet finance, all these types of things, yeah. Crop finance to help yes. uh, farmers. And as we know, they've had a difficult time with you know natural disasters, one after the other, and then COVID hit them as well. But now they've had really good rains. So there's a really good story for agriculture at the moment. Merchant finance, you know, you think about going down to buy a coffee at the local coffee shop. Mm. They're usually running off their till. You know, they're not getting a loan from a large institution. So there's a lot of support going into the system. Um, so I'd say the thing for people to be thinking about is right-sized, best-priced credit for them. And that's not a message just for businesses. That's a message for all of us as well, um, making sure that we're in the best position to have the right amount of credit for our circumstances right now. What do we need to do about the readjustment for the whole economy? Well, that's something that governments and businesses and the community need to think about. And, and to you know, it's going to be hard times, that's for sure. This is a crisis. Let's not forget that. But let's not waste a good crisis either. This is an opportunity to really reset how the system works. I mean, let's make this a more resilient, more inclusive, more sustainable world. Okay, so you are the boss of the Industry Association. So from that point of view, you are literally the face of this organisation and therefore its representative. But at what point do you think there is a division between what you can do at an industry level versus what the individual members have to do themselves to maintain reputation, credibility, and therefore not be the weak link in the chain that starts to drag down everybody else's reputation? That's a combination and there is no silver bullet. And so the industry can come together and think about what it needs to do and what it stands for. And that's why industry codes are really important. They're a really good mechanism for bringing the industry together and saying, what are the standards that we need to have across our industry? What are the practices we want to be regarded for? How do we drive best practices improve and improve things for our industry and for our customers? So having conversations as we are at AFIA at the moment, we've got a few you know, draft codes on the boil right now. And so we're very familiar with having the industry thinking about what it is doing now, what it needs to be doing for the future. But as far as individual organisations are going, again, you know, there's, there's been a lot of conversation around governance and culture. It's come through the Royal Commission findings. There's been various reports, uh, self-assessment reports done by major institutions, which have become bibles for the whole industry to think about. Uh, it's not just the, the larger organisations that have been told, how are you managing yourselves internally? What are your compliance systems doing? How are you making sure management is keeping an eye on things and, and things are escalating to management so they can? The whole industry is looking at how do we make the system better? And I think data is one of the answers as well, actually. 
you know, some of the smaller innovative lenders, um, what they're able to do with data is actually really impressive. Um, and, you know, as, this, as the regulations allow data to be used more and more in the right way, and when I say right way, that is for better customer outcomes and your data is kept to the privacy standards you'd expect, then that's going to be able to have customers and lenders make better decisions around what credit, when to get that credit, and how to use that credit in the best way. Do you think a code of conduct is worth the paper it's written on? It's ultimately, literally, if you like, a set of guidelines by which we will all as an industry lead our, lead our lives. The question is whether the sanctions, if you don't follow that code of conduct, are significant enough reputationally and whether those who don't follow a code of conduct ultimately bring everybody else down in the industry. I just wonder about where a code of conduct sits in the scale of all that. Yeah, look, I think industry associations, there's almost like a breadth of sort of business models for them. On one extreme, you have industry associations who don't think that codes of conduct are their space, and so they don't get involved in that. And then on the other hand, there's industry associations who are literally called SROs, self-regulatory organizations, and they're effectively setting market rules. Uh, And we see that model far more prevalent overseas than here, but we have a couple here. And then there's an organization to which AFIA is and is aspiring to be which is an organisation that is thinking about the future of its industry and the standards that the members want to be held accountable for. So you could look at an industry code and say, oh, look, you know, it's just a defensive play, it's just to stop regulation. A lot of people would say that. Well, history's proven that that's probably wrong because it doesn't stop it because a good code will end up being regulation. Mm. So I think if you are in that sort of defensive space, you're probably not seeing a code for the reality that it is, which is it inevitably could be law and regulation. But you're also not in the right spot to say, well, hold it, this is an opportunity to set best practices. So, you know, I've been involved in codes. I've seen codes evolve over the years. I've seen industry associations thinking about what they do and how they do it with their members in partnership and how they collaborate with governments and stakeholders. And the ones that are probably getting it right for right now are the ones that are thinking about how do I make sure this code is meaningful? Now, we're not regulators. Industry associations shouldn't be regulators. That's for regulators to do. But self-regulation which is what an industry code is, does have to have its governance. So uh, the codes that I've been involved in have a code compliance committee that has independent people on it. That's someone that's you know usually got a background in the industry, someone who knows law, and then an industry uh, uh, sort of uh, informed but consumer representative. So someone who knows the industry but is from outside to sit there with an independent chair and determine whether the code has been complied with. Now, one, we can't force members to become a member of our organisation, but as an organisation, we can say that you need to be a signatory to a code. Mm. So there are ways and means to get the culture that you're after, but it's only part of the puzzle. Do you think organisations, individuals in organisations, do you think that they, by and large, deal well with pressure? How do you think they respond when there's pressure on? Just thinking about even this industry, there's potentially, as I've alluded to, pressure that will come into the future. That's when you really work out the metal of people, isn't it? You do. I think crisis, yeah, as, as the saying goes, crisis brings out the best and worst. Look, I, think, I was asked a question the other day as, as to whether you know, um, businesses are being reluctant or if they're being resilient. And I said, well, that's a kind of odd question to ask because businesses are just a bunch of human beings. And I think human beings are being humans through this crisis. And I think that means they're being reluctant and they're being resilient. And If there's a day during the last few months that someone uh, hasn't felt tired, well, then I think they're probably not being honest with you. So, you know, I think, you know, people are being humans. And I've seen some of the really amazing things come out of the industry in the last year. 
and that's why it's been great being here and working with the members. Um, some good people, but some really dedicated people and some people that really care for their industry and for their customers. The board have been continuing to be dedicated to the ultimate task, which is to lift the role of, of this organisation on behalf of its members, but to continue to deal with what the crisis has, has thrust upon the industry as well. So it is really operating like two train tracks, you know, get on with it now and transform it as well. And so, you know, that's, it's been a good time to be involved in this challenge. How the hell did you get this job? I know you were with the bankers before, right? And you and I knew each other there. Why this job? <laughs> That's a good question, Ross. I must say, I didn't think I'd find myself back in industry association land so quickly. But the work industry associations do with their members is really important work. Um, what I did know from the first meeting with the board is, is I wanted the job. And the AFIA board are a group of very passionate people really wanting to make a difference for their industry. Their values and views on strategy and the future of the industry are completely aligned with mine, and that's really important for me. I wanted a new challenge. I wanted a role I can learn from. I wanted a role I could contribute to. I mean, I'm motivated to get up every morning because I want to make a difference, and I fundamentally believe that finance is critical to all Australians. So having the opportunity to work with an industry to really make things better for Australians is incredibly rewarding. What I didn't know, I guess, is uh, you know, that dealing with a global pandemic or a financial crisis would be uh, one of the challenges that I'd be having to deal with so quickly in the new role. But as it turns out, I've actually got experience in dealing with both pandemics and crises. So who'd have thought, huh? But look, ultimately, I think this is a real opportunity for a global reset. I don't think it, does, it presents just challenges. I think there is serious, serious opportunity for creativity and recreation. But, you know, who knows? Actually, I'm going to flip it around on you, Ross. I mean, what do you think the future holds? I mean, what are your predictions over the next few months and years? Next few months, there's a boom coming. Boom in housing. There's so much money sloshing around, as I said earlier on. There is actually always, that is the response of government when you've had an economic crisis. And as you point out, this is a, a health shock, not a financial shock. So this crisis economically is being caused by that health shock and by having to close down large parts of your economy. Think about uh, uh, students coming into the country, the amount of economic sort of, if you like, well-being they bring, tourists as well. So then you've got a whole situation where a lot of demand has come out of the Australian economy. The government has done classic Keynesian economic theory, poured money in to replace the demand that's disappeared. The real challenge for government long term is after having provided all this finance, all the money is out there, it's put the band-aids on the economy so that the directors of listed companies can now not have to inform the market in a timely manner as they've always had to. Companies can trade while insolvent, which previously for directors would have been illegal. You know, these band-aids at some stage have to start to come off. And there's real issues about who survives and who doesn't survive. So from my point of view, I think the the recession right now that we're having is an initial shock, followed by a period of enormous turnaround. And you can see this in people traveling, people consuming, people buying, all that type of stuff is classic response to a downturn. Government prints money, people get the money, they spend the money, they're feeling pretty good. Then the reality of people losing jobs and or some of those stimulatory measures start to come off. And that's where you really do test the economic strength of your nation. And as I say, I think that that is not six months, 12 months down the track. I think that's three or four years down the track that Australia faces a genuine crisis and it has to respond to that crisis. So whether that is how long can the government continue to print money for? How long can it continue to rack up debt? At what point does it suddenly become a a drag on the economy? 
it's really important right now that government not only stimulates in the way in which it has, that's been important and it's been the right response, but at some point it's got to evolve into building for the future. And I think even in the budget, I felt that the government was on the right track. I know that a lot of people don't like governments trying to pick winners. They're traditionally really poor at doing so. But what you'd like right now is that the government will actually build something that that has a lasting legacy beyond this economic downturn. So if that happens to be in medical technology or if it happens to be in aerospace or space or if it happens to be in some of those other areas that were identified, good, that's fantastic. But if they also build the infrastructure that is required for what Australia looks like in 2050, that they start to look way beyond today, but create jobs, create really, if you like, the the environment for Australians, um, you know, out into the future. Because do bear in mind, my grave concern is that the debts that are being taken on right now, $1.7 trillion, that it is the kids and grandkids of today that will ultimately be responsible for that debt. And it is they who might lead a worse lifestyle, financial lifestyle, than their parents and their grandparents. And this would be the first generation since the Second World War that would find themselves in that situation. And that really, from those children's point of view, is really, from my point, the responsibility of government today to make certain that the burden on future generations is not significantly worse than it needs to be. As you said before, though, I mean, we are on the cusp of, uh, of a boom. And, uh, you know, I think that there's going to be individuals within the industry that are already thinking about what does that strategy look like? What does innovation look like? But to pick up on your point before around, you know, business and what's the role of business? I mean, one of the roles for AFIA is as a representative of businesses, um, and they are businesses in the finance industry. And as we've been talking with government about what are the fiscal things we need, but what are also the non-fiscal things? You know, interest rates are about as low as they can go. We can't go lower. We've probably exhausted that as a tool. You know, private spending is actually what is going to be needed to drive this because private spending is the element that's down. It is very clear that if we turn around private spending, then that is something that's going to help us drive out of this. So AFI and our members came together and thought, okay, well, what do we need to do to get the best out of government measures? What policies are going to need to be changed for now, but also into the future? What strategies are going to be needed to drive that business activity? And then thinking about leveraging the interconnectivity of our urban and regional economies. And we mentioned before that the agriculture sector is in a really good place. Agriculture is not just a feeder for our food distribution and globally. It is also one of the things that underpin our hospitality sector. And our hospitality sector is going to need to be supported as it comes out of this. And obviously, hospitality in terms of events management and things like that is very much an urban and city um, environment. And then thinking about what's the platform we need to really create a modern Australia, Uh, the manufacturing strategy, the digitisation strategy, all those sorts of innovations are things that can be driven from the finance sector. And that's something that we really turned our minds to is, is what is the role of the finance sector in this recovery? And one of the points about that is the barriers to entry to many businesses these days has dropped through the floor. Um, and it doesn't matter whether, and now there are some industries that are still highly capital intensive. Think mining, engineering and construction, and probably agriculture would be another one. But it gets to me that even our regional areas now, with the digital economy now being part and parcel of the way in which we all live, it gives opportunity to those people in country areas to create business that they could not have even contemplated as little as 10 years ago. And I think that that is where you might drive innovation through the whole economy. 
that all of a sudden people suddenly have tools that they've never had. They've had interactivity that they've never had. And it is quite astonishing to think that, you know, we live in a, in a world these days where all information is shared. Think about the combined effort to try and find a vaccine for the coronavirus. It is now a global sort of, if you like, network that is going on to share information. Think about the same thing when it comes to universities and, and teaching, uh, where you can pretty much work out how to change the oil in your car to fix something that you never knew how to simply by sitting up and watching a YouTube clip about whatever it might be, cooking, all of this. So our world has changed. And so it means that people can create skills and gain skills that they've never had before and indeed can be truly innovative, not just here, but all around the world. And it means that we can also take the best of what we've got to offer. But somehow you've got to work out where your strengths are as a nation and you've got to build to those strengths. But my whole point about this period of time is I'd like to think like the 91 recession, that you get genuine reform that comes from government, which means that it is easier to do business that a person who does business and takes a risk keeps more of that money, that a person who goes out and innovates is given every incentive to do so, and therefore, as a result, the nation as a whole builds and grows, employs more people, pays more taxes. Because let's be honest, a person who is leaving university today in 15 years' time may be doing something that is not even dreamt of today. And that's what people are doing even today as compared with 10 years ago. And this is what you've got to be. You've got to be adaptable with skills. And even people in industry and listening to this have got to recognize that their own world is going to change. There's going to be competition that they've never known coming at them from different quarters. And really, in many ways, they have got to continue to operate as though they're startups innovating and not resting on laurels. That means resting on laurels from an ethical standpoint, from an industry practice standpoint, from a technology standpoint but certainly from the way in which Australia will evolve during the aftermath of this crisis. And I think that's the key. Sounds like you're looking for a job on one of our co-compliance committees. Not really, no. I'm going to play golf. That's what I do well, when I'm not talking to you. No, that's been good. How good has that been? That's been fun. Thanks for your time. No problems at all. The future of finance is here. That much we know. Be sure to tune in to our next episode where we continue the conversation on creating change in the finance industry with the people that are making change happen. Let us know what you think. Leave a review or rating and tell us if there is someone you'd like to hear from or a topic you'd like covered that you think will shape the future of our industry. I'm Mel Carpenter, Executive Director, Member Services, and I'm thrilled to have you joining this series with us. If you like what you've heard, head to afia.asn.au to find out more or subscribe via your favourite podcast app.